Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. Andrew Foster is a futurist and innovation catalyst and author and above all, professional public speaker. He is widely regarded as a thought leader in the innovation space and he travels the world electrifying audiences with his ideas. Our fireside chat centered on value, giving value to your audience and knowing your value as a speaker. Before we begin, I want to give a big shout out to Simplecast, our very first sponsor for the Fireside with Boxgate podcast. Andrew, I am delighted to have you here today on the Fireside Box Gig podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure to be here, Richard. I'm looking forward to this. Fantastic. So you are a professional public speaker, which is fantastic. Well done. It's a difficult place to get to. And I think a lot of people are interested in how you end up as a professional speaker. So maybe take us on your speaking journey, not so much your career, but from the very first time spoken public on that journey up to today where you are paid professionally to speak? So I'm going to take you a little bit before that even, even yes, a little bit further back. <laughs> so I was raised, I spent most of my formative years in rural Africa, raised on a farm. And rural Africa has a very rich culture of storytelling. So you get, get brought up sitting around a fire, listening to to people telling stories, and that's how they pass history and knowledge on from person to person. Yes. Um, and, and still today, that still prevails. And at a very, very young age, I was conferred with the Zulu honorific of an Mbongi. And an Mbongi is a storyteller. And I got that honorific because I used to go with a, a, a box of slides. Do you know what slides are? Do, do people even know what slides projector are? projector slides? A projector yeah. slides, that's it. And I used to have a battery-operated projector. My dad had gone on this amazing trip over to Japan uh, in my youth and come back with a shoebox full of slides from his trip. And I used to entertain the locals with, with these slides and tell them stories about the things that they were seeing, which were, were so alien to them, particularly coming in a rural culture, um, that they conferred me with this honorific of Mbongi. And that was before, that was pre-teen years. And then going on to high school, our English teacher, um, right from our first year of secondary school, got every single person in the class to stand up and do a five to 10 minute oral presentation as part of our English lessons regularly. Which I bet everybody absolutely hated and dreaded. Most people absolutely hated it, but there were a few of us who totally relished it. And by the time in our very final year, as part of our English examination, we had to do a 40 minute presentation in front of the class, which is essentially a keynote. 
And by that time, we had been coached and we had taken the feedback and we had got so much preparation that even though, you know, it, it's to your classmates, but this is for serious Marxists as part of your, your English overall final mark. So that basically really set me up. It was a great foundation, although I didn't actually apply the skill for many, many years after But you knew you could speak in public, I guess. Well, I knew that I wasn't afraid of speaking to people that I knew. It was completely different when it comes to comes to people that you don't know. So going into into a work environment, my professional speaking career in a work environment, or at least a large and unknown audience in a work environment, started about 15 years ago when I held a position in a large financial services company. I was the vice president of technology research and development. And I, part of my role was to evangelize new technologies and to open people's eyes as to the opportunities and impacts and implications of this. And I started out just doing presentations on what was happening in the world of technology and trends and consumer behaviors um, to internal audiences. That got bigger and bigger. It became divisional audiences of 300 staff, things like this. But these are all friendly audiences. Yeah, they were internal. They were all internal. Yeah. They were friendly. And then I started doing some external audiences with some of the clients and some of the bigger banks and things like that. And then my really first big professional gig, I absolutely had a meltdown. I oh, was at okay. a huge conference in Germany and I'd been dumped in it. My boss had turned around literally two days before an event and said, something more important has come up. Can you just fly over to Berlin and deliver this particular presentation that I'd done loads of times before um, to an event at a Gartner conference? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just two and a half thousand people in a plenary session in a huge auditorium. Now, did you have the slides already prepared? Yes. This was a presentation that I was used to doing. You know, this was something that I had done many, many times before. And I thought, oh, yeah, no problem. This is high stakes. This is high stakes. But I incorrectly (laughs) assumed it would be pretty just, you know, bigger than internal. And uh, when I was waiting in the wings and I saw the audience in front of me, I started hyperventilating. Oh, Lord. And I just, man, I had a panic attack. I had a serious panic attack. And uh, when the time came and I walked out on stage, I literally, literally lost my voice. I squeaked out a couple of sounds, grabbed a a glass of water from the podium, tried to squeak again. And, you know, then the panic hits in even more and your throat messes up even more. And I just thought, Oh my goodness, this is a, and I forced myself. Worst nightmare. It was my worst absolute bleeding nightmare. I'm telling you, that was really my first proper professional outing. But I managed to get through it and got in the groove. And bizarrely, that ended up being one of the highest rated sessions that Gartner have ever had from an external speaker. So was reported (laughs) to me by one of the Gartner people (laughs) afterwards. So it just goes to show that you can have a disastrous start. And so long as you can power on through. Why was that? Was it because you knew the material? You were authentic, perhaps? Or? Well, I was still making some serious mistakes at that stage. Okay. And one of them was I had learned a script by heart. 
And the thing that panicked me was when I walked out on that stage, there was a lot of pressure from the organization that I worked for. Because now, you know, I'm a paid person. I wasn't paid to present at the conference, but I was earning a salary from the company that I worked for. And I was there representing them in and, you know, trying to put them forward in a, in a good light. And they had certain key phrases and words and statistics that they insisted I wove into the narrative. Mm. So all of this was learnt by heart. It was scripted. The PR people had gone over this with a fine-tooth comb. The internal corporate communications people had they'd made sure that I wasn't going to say anything inflammatory and all of this. Everybody had reread and double-checked the script and everything like this. And I was having a panic that I would forget my lines or not say the right thing at the right time or just so it went on. And that whole feeling of nervousness, actually then that tripped me up for a good number of events after that. I would arrive in an event if it was an external event. Internal events I was still fine with, but external events... When I arrived there, I would start hyperventilating and having a panic attack. But you were still doing it. You were still forcing yourself. After that first one, I started being invited to more and more of these myself. And my boss then said, oh, great. Somebody else can rather do these instead of me. <laughs> That's often the way that it happens. Oh, man. <laughs> but that one of these who, who has become a firm and fast friend and a very, very good mentor who is a professional speaker and had been on the speaking circuit for many years. He came up to me before an event and he gave me the best advice that I've ever had in my speaking career. And I've repeated this to so many aspiring speakers. Mm. And he came up to me and he just, you know, he asked me, he said, look, mate, I've seen you do this, this particular presentation many times. Why are you so worried? He said, I was literally, I was shaking. I was ashen white. I had physically thrown up in the toilet beforehand. Wow. Um, and this, that's how bad the nerves had got. And he said, what's wrong with you? And I just said to him, oh, you know, I'm worried about this and I'm worried that I'll get my timing wrong and things like this. And he turned around to me and he said, nobody in that audience knows what you are supposed to say. So just relax and say the stuff that you know needs to be said. And he, he made me leave my script behind. And he said, give me the damn script. You know the stuff. And I'd been using the script as a crutch up until that point. I really had been. You know, people go out with flashcards and notes. Yeah. And he said, Look, you know the stuff. And, and I've got a particular style of presenting. I fashion myself after TED speakers and things like that. There are no words on any slides that I present. That's one of the key things. Ah, I, okay. I present with images only. There's no charts and graphs and 10 so points. So you felt you needed a, a scripter. But I didn't. But I thought that I did. And when he turned around, he said, nobody there knows what you're supposed to say. And he said, nobody knows which slide or which image, what you're supposed to say. So he said, if you forget something and it's really key and your corp comms department Kind of shouted you about it. Weave it in later on down the line. Big deal. Nobody knows when you're supposed to say that. And that was just a total light bulb moment. It just went bing. And from then on, I have been the most relaxed person on stage. This week, I was in a, um, sorry, last week, I was in a, a big conference in Amsterdam on the main stage with uh, the room capacities, four and a half thousand people. The oh, room, wow, three quarters full. 
I was so chilled and relaxed. It doesn't faze me at all now. But that it was just for that one thing. And after that, I disciplined myself. I actually wrote a blog post to help other speakers. The blog post was entitled, You've Got Seven Seconds to Catch Your Audience's Attention. And I give my top seven tips on what you should do. And one of those is ditch the script. Know your stuff, have your images, and use your images as prompts. And if you know your stuff well enough and just speak to the stuff that you know, and it just comes out so much more naturally as well. It just flows easier. I get up and everything now is a performance. And I have fun on stage. I absolutely love People are jealous when they hear that because for most people, it's a trial to have to do it. It takes away. And as I say, it wasn't when, when people see me on stage now and I say, you know, I used to throw up before going, they say, yeah, you're joking. Yeah. I say, no, seriously, genuinely, you can ask this guy who has helped me no end. I used to throw up. And, and so you can get over it. You just, Andrew, you've, you've earned your stripes. <laughs> <laughs> you raise an interesting point there about the size of the audience and mm. the type of talk you give or how it differs. So, I mean, if you think about the difference between an audience of 10 versus 100 versus 1,000. Mm -hmm. And I've just made those up on the spot. Where do you think the cutoffs are in terms of how the talk feels or how you should approach it? You know, is an audience of 100 really different from an audience of 1,000? No. And I'll tell you why. So I have, again, I've got rules. I like processes and I like mm. frameworks and that kind of a thing. So for me, any talk that you do, it doesn't matter how big the audience is. It can be five people. It can be 5,000 people. The first thing that you've got to think of is, okay, I'm going to run through this four things. The very first thing is, who is it for? The next thing is, what do you want them to know? The next thing is, how do you want them to feel? And the final thing is, what do you want them to do? So if I go back to the, who is this for? What you must never forget as a professional speaker is you are not on stage for yourself. You're not on there because it's to feed your ego or anything like that. People have either paid good money to sit in front of you, or they have paid in terms of their time. They have given up their time to be in a room listening to you, whether it is for 10 minutes or for 40 minutes, I don't care, but they are trading their time and you have to give them something of value back. So the first thing you think of is, who is this for? Now, my eldest daughter is in marketing and marketing are very familiar with customer personas. Whenever you do a communication, you drop customer personas. Well, I because I like alliteration, I've developed audience avatars. Okay. So I have an audience avatar sheet. And audience avatar sheets, I, I do exactly the same as a marketing person would do. I pick a name, age, job title, salary, education, relationship independence, where the person lives, their cultural background, the affinity brands what their objectives, goals, and needs are, what obstacles, challenges, and fears they face, what information sources and social media they might scan, what their personality would be like, their likes and their dislikes, and what decision and influence they have. And this is a person. I pick a person that I'm creating a particular session or a narrative for, and I might name a particular audience avatar, Richard. And I would quote the name and job title. I would go, okay, so what yeah. is this person's objective? 
And I will use three or four audience avatars when I'm designing a session that I'm talking to. So I might be talking to um, specifically aiming to CMOs in an audience, or I might be uh, aiming for um, the technology people in the audience, or I might be aiming it at the finance people or the risk people. But instead of that just being a large bucket of people, I know the finance person is Bob. Bob is in his 50s. He's worked in the organization for 20 years. He hates new technology and disruption and change. He's a huge influencer. I know that Bob reads the Financial Times every day. So if I'm going to quote something from the FT, that's going to land well with Bob because he respects that kind of thing. So I will pick out, before I do any gig, I go through a sheet with the event organizer where I take a brief. I want to know their audience composition. I want to know um, what their intention is of the event, who else is speaking, what they're speaking about, what's been done in the past, what's worked, what hasn't. And I try and get at least a list of the company backgrounds and the kind of people that are going to be there. And then I go, okay, so what's the composition going to be? Who in that audience am I giving this message to? So if I know that I'm giving this message to Sally from marketing, Bob from finance, and Richard at the C-suite level, then my narrative will make sure that I've got points that will hit each one of those. Because in an audience of 10, there might be three of those people. In an audience of 1,000, there might be 300 of those people. And those are the people that I'm speaking to. It doesn't okay. matter how big the audience is. To me, it's very personal. I'm speaking to that person somewhere in the audience. So I don't mind how big the audience is. And it doesn't, you, you don't have to get too generic. You don't have to get too specific, but you bear those people in mind. And to me, that means that audience doesn't really make a big difference. So once you've got your audience avatar, then you say, okay, what do you want that person to know? What I want Sally to know, what I want Bob to know, what I want Richard to know. I make sure I'm going to weave those into the narrative. Right? How do I want them to feel? Do I want Sally to feel um, inspired? Do I want Bob to feel reassured? Do I want Richard to feel energized? Right? How am I going to weave those in there? So they won't all get exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, but if I can try and touch those points, during my narrative, and I can walk away at the end and I go, all the Bobs, all the Sallys, all the Richards in the audience would have picked up and those messages would have landed and I will get nods at the appropriate times. And, and sometimes I can look across an audience and I can see the Sallys nodding at the right time and I can see the Bobs nodding at the right time, you know, that kind of a thing. And then you go, okay, now what do you want them to do at the end? What's the call to action? What's it going to be? Mm. And the call to action is not, they going to buy your book. I hate it when people's call to action is, you know, they stand up on stage and they say, okay, and buy my book. The call to action should be something, what do you want them to actually do? Because if you've given them something of use that they can take away and apply, they are going to remember you. And as a consequence, they'll either buy your book or contact you for some consultancy or bring you in to engage their own audience or something like that. The call to action is not sign up for my newsletter or buy my book. That is a really naff way to end a thing. Give them something of value to remember you by. That is a really, really fantastic piece of advice. 
we, and we often get this in this podcast where, you know, the speaker's experience kind of comes out about these really specific things. I, I really like that because I've done that. I'm guilty of, of going, oh, and I've written a book. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, if, if, if I was representing a company, it's like, oh, and we're hiring. Yeah. What a wonderful company we are. If they like you enough, that you're going to be interested enough to visit your website, engage on your social media. And that's when, if somebody visits my website, you can't scroll down halfway through the page without getting a pop-up saying, sign up to my newsletter. Yeah. And I'm going to signpost you about the place. But on stage, when they are paying with their attention, not the right place. Yeah, you've got to think about what's the value yeah. that they walk away with. That's yep. wonderful. I, I, I love it. Speaking of books, this is an interesting topic because you, you're, you're a published author and a lot of professional speakers do have a book or two in their back pockets, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And if, if somebody is listening today and thinking of going down this road, you know, you end up in a place where you are freelance, you know, you, you, you live or die by the spoken word. How important is it to have a book to your name? That's a difficult one. To me, it's useful. There are lots of speakers who have written a book and got a speaking career off the back of the book. So they write the book and then their talk is about what the book's about. The guy who mentors me, he did exactly that. He wrote a book 15 years ago, and for 15 years, he has made an extremely lucrative living. But that's like advising somebody to get an Oscar to be successful in film. <laughs> it depends on what kind of a book it is. To me, I had already been speaking professionally for four years before I actually got the published author badge to my name. And now where I say it's useful, if an event organizer has got uh, four people that they're considering in the same category. So I speak about innovation. That's what I do. Yeah. And I am a futurist by classical academic training. And I speak about the things you can be more innovative with and how to be more innovative. Those are basically the two types of a talk that I do. And I had an event organizer contact me. And after spending 30 minutes on the phone with me, she said, I've made up my mind. Uh, you are the one. I had a, a short list of four people and you are definitely the one. And thank you very much. And had a great event with them. And when I sat down with her after the event and I said, you know, what swung it for you? So she said, well, um, the interview on the phone, that really swung it because your passion yeah. storytelling came through. But she said, you made the short list because you're a published author. Yeah. She said, I had a long list, but you were on the short list because you're a published author. So that's where it becomes useful. In my case, I'm a published author through being a part of a collaborative book. Really the most efficient way to do it. It is. <laughs> All it is. the gain and none of the pain. Exactly. I didn't have to write a whole book. I wrote one chapter and 10 of us collaborated together and a publisher had put this out there. And as a result of that, I've been asked to join in with two other collaborative projects, which I will probably go ahead and do. And I've got two private projects that I'm working on at the moment for books of my own. And they're different types of books and they're there to serve different purposes. But published author badge was useful and fairly simple to earn through going down a collaborative route. Yes, that's the thing to do, isn't it? Other people I know um, have had a massively successful book go live and then they've only started public speaking as a result of it. That's a great way to do it, but I needed to earn money quicker than that. Yeah, that's too most of us. <laughs> it will take you a long time to write a decent book that's going to be a bestseller. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about money because I think that's another topic that is of interest. You know, when you started speaking and, and 
it sounds like this was your history as well. You're really doing it as part of your job. Your boss has asked you to go and talk and you get paid your salary, of course, but you don't get anything extra. You might get a gift from the organizers of the conference, perhaps. But your situation is different now. You are, this is how you earn your, your living. It is, yeah. This is my sole income source, public wow. speaking and running workshops, which is essentially the same. I don't do consultancy. So lots of people are contractors and they'll go and do multi-day consultancy. I am literally in and out in the same day, maybe two or three days if I'm doing master of ceremonies or something like that. But I earn my living solely through public speaking and running workshops or one day masterclasses, that kind of thing. The difficulty for me, so I had been working in my previous role for 10 years and over that period of time had amassed over 500 keynote sessions. I kept track and counted. So keynote sessions at workshops, it was prolific. In my final year, I did over 130 engagements in the same year. It was hectic. Good Lord. That's a travel schedule from hell, I would say. It is. But thankfully, I love travel and I love exploring and I make sure that I enjoy it. I'm a relaxed traveler. But here's the thing. So I got made redundant from the previous company due to a massive company takeover. And I decided that 10 years at the same company, I had had my time, loved it there, no regrets. I will take the redundancy and I'll go and try doing something for myself, which um, ended up being the public speaking. And when I left, I thought, well, you know, I've been doing 130 gigs in a year. If I even only land one-tenth of that, I'll be off to a good start. So I started reaching out to all the companies that I had done those 130 gigs for. And I went, oh, you know, I'm Andrew, and you'll know me from this, and I had spoken at your event and all the rest, just to let you know I'm now independent. And they go, great, you know, um, we've got another event coming up. We'd love to have you there. And I'd say, okay, well, here's my fee. And they'd go, oh, um, Oh, but we've uh, never paid uh, for you before. Uh, and I went, yeah, that's because my other company was paying my salary. You know, I'm now a professional speaker. And they went, uh, so who at your old company does the same as you? And I went, well, nobody, because they made us all redundant. You know, made over a thousand of us yeah. redundant. As, as well, And nobody does that. And they go, ah, uh, well, we don't have a speaker budget. So I started from scratch, from zero from absolutely nowhere, and then built it up in the five years. I I literally started from not one single client. So who does pay for speakers? So for me, my most successful clients are corporate clients, much more so than events. Interesting. Corporate clients are my absolute sweet spot. And those are corporate clients across multiple different industries. I've got a very diverse set of corporate clients I speak to and run workshops for. So the corporate clients are the best payers. They are also the most difficult to find Mm -hmm. because there's no single event organizer a lot of the time. A lot of the time it's a middle manager or maybe even a senior manager um, that wants to uh, have a, a staff or team or divisional away day and they're looking for something there that is both infotainment, you know, it's educational, but also entertaining. And as I say, I do put on a performance. So I have to balance the kind of events that I will do, uh, let's say, for a slightly discounted rate if I'm going to get a large amount of exposure. But I 
adamantly won't do fee-free. At least they've got to cover expenses and a speaker stipend. And for the majority of events now, I can command a standard fee. For some of them, though, I will do a discount or, or expenses covered if they give massive exposure. Unfortunately, I have yet to be able to convince my bank manager to accept exposure bucks as payment <laughs> for my mortgage. Um, yeah. I keep on thinking that uh, maybe there's a cryptocurrency in there somewhere. You know, can we create an exposure bucks currency? Because everybody wants to pay with blooming exposure and I can't use that anywhere. So uh, uh, can we earn uh, exposure bucks, please, and then use it to power mortgages? You can't imagine that people in 2019 will offer exposure with a straight face anymore. Oh, there is worse. There is worse. I'm allowed to have a rant here and rant yes, about this yes. whole pay to play scene. This to me is the. Oh, that's the. Oh, so that's the other side of it. This is. Lose money by speaking. There are definitely different kinds of events. There are those events who charge an entry fee, a decent entry fee, and they get sponsorship and they use a portion of that money to set themselves up a speaker budget and they pay professional speakers to come and give quality content to their audiences. And those are the kind of event organizations that I seek out actively and that I work with because they value the fact that the speakers that they are bringing in are giving value to the audience and they will carefully curate the speakers. They don't get people who sell from stage and they don't get people who are just going to give a commercial message and a company message. They're looking for people who have got deep knowledge and, and domain expertise to be able to pass on. Those are good events in my book. Yeah, yeah. There is, however, a really terrible a scourge on the event scene at the moment of event companies that charge the audience, but also charge the speakers for speaking slots. It's fantastic to believe that's even possible. It's incredible. The worst part about it, though, is that I get approached a minimum of twice a week by these kind of organizations, a minimum. Some weeks, three or four times in the same week. Um, I had one today that had a gentleman that connected with me on LinkedIn and said, oh, you know, I've just seen that because I've been at this big event last week. He said, oh, I've just seen that you were over here and we're running a similar event down in this region and we'd like to invite you to be a speaker. So I said, oh, you know, um, no problem. Thanks for the connection. Let me hook you in with my speaker manager. And then I get an email, you know, we hereby formally invite you to speak at our event. Please click here to confirm your acceptance of the invitation. I click on the link and it says speaking slots are available as follows. £5,000 for a 15-minute track session or £10,000 for a 30-minute plenary session. That's what they're asking me to pay them. It's like an alternate universe. Bizarre. And they're not the only ones. I had a gentleman a month ago who was so dismissive to me. He turned around and he said, I don't think you understand the value of our audience. He said, um, we have got 500 of the top C-suite executives from the biggest law firms across Europe and we are gathering them for a three-day event that involves five-star luxury entertainment, golfing, and food, and everything like this. 
and they are paying 10 to 15,000 euros per package. And I'm thinking, and you still want to charge me? And he said, you don't understand the value of this level of audience. And I thought, no, what I do understand is the amount of money that you're making. To me, the disappointing thing is that particular audience have no idea that every single person that will be put in front of them, when they're paying 10 to 15,000 euros for their three-day package for a jolly holiday somewhere in sunny Spain, every single person that stands in front of them during their three-day event has paid to be there and therefore will be doing nothing other than selling hard to get their money's worth. Because this guy said, oh, if you want to stand to sell your book from, I said, I make no money from book sales. Ask any author. You don't make money off the sales. You make money off the speaking. But you get pennies from the sale of a book, if you're lucky, from royalties. And yet this guy was so dismissive. He said, well, if you can't afford it, obviously this isn't the right event for you. And I thought, you cheeky so-and-so. It's not just the fact that, okay, you know, they, they have their little thing going, but the fact that he berates you. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I, I, was, I was quite happy just to let it slide because I just went yeah. back to him and I said, oh, you're one of those events. Sorry, I'm not interested. Yeah. The worst part is he's trying to convince me by telling me that he's ripping these people off to the tune of ten to 15,000 euros per ticket, depending on what class of ticket they're getting. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, but you've got 500 people at, let's just call it 10,000, 10,000 per ticket? Uh, sorry, how much are they pulling in from this, plus sponsorships, plus they charging their speakers. No, 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 no. This is a scam and a half. So I pity these poor legal professionals that went to that event. They really need to look into the way that the event company is working. I think we should <laughs> we should relax. <laughs> it's good to know that all these different things exist in the world. It's a very um, colorful world, isn't it? It's something to watch out from. I mean, I was on a forum and I posted a rant about this. It was a speaker forum. And apparently this is very, very common in the United States. And this is the way that most aspiring speakers see as a route for them to get in front of a big audience. Um, Um, And apparently this is quite commonplace. And I went, no, look, you know, shift, come and speak here in Europe, because in Europe, that's not, well, put it this way. It's a rising trend. And I certainly hope that somebody kills it before it becomes commonplace. And thankfully, my revenue stream is primarily from corporate organizations. But if the events turn out to be this, I'm sorry, we're just going to see events full of uh, salesmen selling from stage. And they will be the most boring presentations that you've ever seen while somebody, you know, you're going to pay to go and sit in front of being sold for, for six hours in a day. That's not going to be a great event. No, and the passion won't be there. I think this has been a very passionate <laughs> Andrew, I, uh, it's been great to have you on. Uh, lots and lots of really cool, really great insights. I think that framing that you spoke about earlier, where try to finish with the value that you're providing to the audience is a really great takeaway. Yeah. It's a really great approach to take. It sounds like you have a fairly good process as well for your public speaking engagements. I don't know, do you have this material on a website or have you written about it? Avatar stuff? Or that sort yeah, of thing? a couple of things are. There is um, on my own website, so andrewforster.com. Uh, if you go there into the blog, you'll be able to see a blog called Seven Seconds. I can happily ping you the URL as well. Yeah, fantastic. One included it there. And I'm perfectly happy at the moment. The, um, the audience avatar sheet has been something that I've dished out to people 
that I've spoken to, but I'm quite happy to punt that up on the website as well, just with a bit of blurb around it for other speakers to download. Wonderful. Um, they can freely download it and use it. I've turned it into an editable PDF, so you can just download the PDF and uh, um, yeah, plug in your own stuff and, and try it out. And Wonderful. see whether or not it helps you. I, I found it extremely useful to individually identify, and as I say, not too many, because you've just got to think, you know, frame it, who you're doing this for, what, what's the kind of event, that kind of thing. And just three or four people that you're going to pick out and say, I'm going to speak to these three or four people in the audience that are fictitious people that I've come up with, but I know who they are. I know what they like. I know where they get the info from, that kind of thing. And it just helps you to create your message so that it doesn't wander all over the place and becomes nothing to everybody. It is a great idea. Mm. With that, Andrew, thank you so much. You are welcome, Richard, and you have a good evening. You too. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgeek.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who help make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.